Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Really at the heart of it is we're interested in selling and growing so we can have more impact in the world through through generosity. So we're naturally inclined to grow our business because we believe the more we grow, the more that we can give. This coming year in 2022, we'll cross grant making of $3 million. Hello and welcome to Our Impact. I'm your host, Jeremy K. Spear. This show explores what our impact is, what we can do about it, and how we can help scale positive outcomes and solutions. We'll be learning from people doing strong work across nonprofits, academia, business, and sport to connect the dots and find ways we can all take action. This show is as a result of my own searching. A few years ago, I measured my carbon footprint for the first time, and I realized how my travel as a professional beach volleyball player is actually at odds with the positive impact I'm striving to have. I wanted to act, but it wasn't clear where to begin. I've made a number of changes since then, but I'm still learning more every day. I hope you find these conversations useful and that the ideas we explore might help you take action in your own life and community. My guest today is Brian Pape, the CEO and founder of Mir, a food and drinkware company. Brian founded Mir in 2010 with his wife, Rebecca, with the dream of combining business and philanthropy. Design, generosity, and sustainability are at the core of Mir. Every Mirror product sold has a giving code where you can see what social or environmental project your purchase helps support. In 2022, Mirror is approaching giving away $3 million to nonprofit partners. Mirror is B Corp, 1% for the planet, climate neutral, and evergreen certified. Through their growth, they've been able to scale their impact while never taking on any venture capital investment, something that we get into in our conversation. We also go deep on how Mirror focuses on the next best step and taking responsibility for their impact and generosity. The importance of minimalist product design, the culture and investment Mir is making in its employees to learn and grow, and creating partnerships with other brands, nonprofits, and creatives where everyone wins and there's a tangible impact. Brian has thought long and hard about what it means to be a founder, finding the balance of investing in his people and giving to nonprofits, and taking the long view for Mir, which is quite rare nowadays in business. At the very end, Brian shares an insightful perspective on how things are not as black and white as they may seem, and how this applies to business and our society at large. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and hope you do too. This episode is brought to you by Rise Brewing Co. Rise makes my favorite nitro cold brew coffee and provides energy for good people to do good things. If I'm at home, I start my day with Rise's original black nitro cold brew with their oat milk, or if I'm heading to the beach to train or surf, I'll take a mocha or vanilla latte with me. The best part is that Rise is 100% USDA certified organic. The oat milk Rise makes is tasty and impactful. Farming oats uses about six times less land than farming dairy and six times less water than farming almonds. I've been working to shift towards a plant-based diet, but I'm not perfect and it's definitely a process. Rise makes it easier for me because I can swap half and half for Rise's tasty plant-based oat milk and I'm supporting certified organic farmers, all while enjoying delicious nitro coffee. Head to Rise Brewing Co. and use Jeremy's C15 for 15% off your order and free shipping. This episode is brought to you by Mir. The reason I partner with Mir is that they make beautiful products I enjoy using day-to-day and traveling, which helps me cut down on single-use plastic. I can't tell you how nice it is to have their Thermo 3D vacuum-insulated bottles keep my water ice cold the whole day when I'm at the beach training or competing. My favorites for the beach and travel are the 42-ounce wide-mouth water bottle for hydration, the 20-ounce travel tumbler for coffee, and the food canister that I pack my son's school lunches in. Aside from making awesome drinkware, they've earned B Corp, 1% for the planet, and climate neutral certifications, so you know they're taking transparent action to have a positive social and environmental impact. And if that wasn't enough, every Mirror product sold 
helps fund nonprofit partners working at the intersection of communities and the environment. There's literally a giving code on every product, so you can look up Mir's impact made possible by your support. Go to Mir.com and use Keyspear20 to receive 20% off your order. Brian, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. We we're just saying three kiddos, a newborn, a three-year-old and five-year-old and running Mir. It's, I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. You know, somebody, somebody once, uh, a mentor of mine said, you know, there's like four things you can have. There's family, friends, running a business and sleep or something like that. <laughs> like pick, pick three, you know? And so I think sleep lost out on that. Yeah. One. <laughs> well, I've been a fan of Mir for quite a while since I found my first Mir bottle. First thing I noticed was the design and then went straight to the website and social and saw the certifications, the impact transparent up in front. And I was really happy to partner with you guys last year, represent Mir on the AVP tour and then create some content and excited to dive into all things impact. Yeah, man. We have to start with your founder story. I'm sure you've said this quite a lot, but it's pretty wild. So could you give a little bit of background on how Mir came to be and the business model that you came up with merging business and philanthropy and putting design and generosity at the heart of everything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks. Thanks again for having, having me on. It's, it's always good to talk about business and jam and we love having you as a, an ambassador of the brand and, you know, just walking in sand is hard enough. So yeah. jumping and playing volleyball is like kind of mind blowing to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, mere 12 years. 12 years in the making now, and it's almost 13, which is wild to think about. But really the idea of Mirror is kind of like you said, this combination of business and philanthropy. And the concept of that was was really brought to the forefront in, in 2006. I was fairly young and, you know, I think when, when we're all in our 20s, we're all kind of somewhat selfish. And me specifically, I was, it was all about me and, you know, what could I do for myself and what, how could I make money? And, you know, it was really just really selfish. And... In, in 2006, I was in a um, pretty bad ski accident. I was filming for a local pass, Stevens Pass here, Seattle, Washington, and ended up uh, breaking my femur right in half, hit a tree skiing. While I was filming, the whole thing was like kind of wild. And it's interesting because I think like ignorance is sometimes bliss. If I didn't know this, I probably would have been like, oh, well, I broke my legs, you know, and carry on with my life. But my roommate at the time had done something similar two years earlier, broke his leg, and he said, hey, you know, he survived. He said, hey, you know, I was told that if you hit your femoral artery, you'll bleed to death in about 15 minutes internally if you hit your artery, which obviously the femur is your biggest bone. It's fragmented. It can hit your artery pretty easily. So here I am two years later, sitting at this tree with my leg off to the right, thinking, oh my gosh, I, I could literally be like yeah. having my last moments. And, and you know, not everybody has kind of life or death experiences. I'm certainly looking back grateful for the experience, obviously grateful to be alive, but grateful for kind of the awakening, I'd say, of, of really kind of my life flashing before my eyes thinking, wow, I've been incredibly selfish. I'd love to do something beyond me. But you know, the other thing that was kind of forefront is I'd been dating my now wife. We've been dating for three years. I thought, you know, I got to get it together. She's incredible. If I survive from this, you know, I'd really like to, to, you know, lock this down and spend the rest of my life with her. And I think, I think it was a great choice. <laughs> she's kind of the silent co-founder. She's in the background. She's, you know, a lot of the stuff you see on the website, the copy. A lot of that is from her. She's an incredible writer, really incredible thinker. She's on our executive leadership team and she's kind of the the silent mic dropper. You know, we'll <laughs> all be talking way too much and she'll just have these profound moments of insight during our meetings or offsites. And so she just has, we have this really great partnership together and three kids and it's beautiful chaos. And we worked our asses off in our twenties and, you know, it's starting to pay off in our thirties a little bit, but yeah, it's been a long journey. And like you said, it's, you know, we have 
a, a bunch of different products, uh, but really at the heart of it is, is we're interested in selling and growing so we can have more impact in the world through, through generosity. So we're naturally inclined to grow our business because we believe the more we grow, the more that we can give this coming year in 2022, we'll, we'll cross grant making of $3 million, which is a, wow. it's a fun milestone. I will say early on year one through seven, almost, you know, we were given 10 K hundred K, you know, it starts to add up over time. And that's why I always encourage people, Hey, just start somewhere. Cause early on, it kind of felt a little, not disingenuous, but just like, well, I, I probably could have stayed in like my career and, you know, just given money from my salary and probably do more than we're doing now. Uh, which is the traditional just, method is let's go. Totally. And towards the end of life, once you've made it, once you've kind of built your nest egg, start to give it away and support foundations and the rest. Yeah. So we wanted to have it like, to your point, we want to have this model of giving through every single transaction and then not give out profitability. You know, it's, it's interesting just looking at greenwashing. I don't know what it'd be called for like philanthropy washing or like social washing or something, but you know, a lot of people give on, on profit and, and, you know, most consumers have no idea the difference between revenue and profit and yeah. profit yeah. is what you have is what you have after the fact, after you've paid for your rent and your expenses and your inventory and all that stuff, that's profit at the very end. And, you know, we weren't profitable for five years. So if we were giving out profit, we wouldn't have given any money. We could say, we're giving hundred percent of profit. Yeah. People would have been like, wow, you're doing all this incredible work. And we wouldn't have given a dang dollar. So we've always given on revenue. You know, we, we pay, we, we pay about 3% of our revenue to grant to our nonprofit partners around the world. And so far it's worked. And we're going to dive into the impact and certifications and then also trying to balance everything, but we'd love to dive into design a little bit. So Mir's very minimalist, functional, and it stands out from all the other drinkware and foodware. Uh, that's the first thing I noticed when I picked it up. It's that moment where you fall in love with the brand just from that visceral moment of it in your hands. And you built Mir because you noticed some lack of options and then some pretty common problems like analogy and then some of your first ad campaigns you drink from them times <laughs> you're just pouring water all over yourself you're on a bumpy road or something in the car you're done for lids hitting you in the mouth so where did you draw inspiration when you're designing the early bottles and how did you go about fixing them and obviously product obsession has to be at the center point of any consumer good brand so would love to hear you riff on that a bit yeah for sure you know for for design you know we have a whole kind of philosophy in it it really starts with the simple idea of just making something beautiful and functional. And I think that's kind of where sustainability and durability start. Yeah. Because if you, if you create something that A is just cheap, it's not going to last long. That's not good for anybody. But also if you don't, if you're not like attracted to the product, you don't, you don't have that visceral feeling of like, I really, really like this product. It kind of goes by the wayside or it's not functional. You kind of stop using it. Right. And so for us, it was always about, let's have something that's really enjoyable that works really well. And so. You know, that's kind of like a core philosophy for us. It's, it's funny because I'm, you know, people are like, oh, are you a designer? I do design a lot of products, but now we have a whole team that does it. We're way more experienced than I am. We're trained in industrial design and, and whatnot. And so I think a lot of that credit is due to my mom who, you know, highly creative. She was my art teacher growing up and as a volunteer art teacher in school, she went to UCLA School of Design. And so there was always kind of this, this, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's funny because my dad went to Stanford, my mom went to UCLA. So there was always some, some nice rivalry there in the, in the pack 10 or, or I guess 12 now. And aesthetics were always really important to her. So our house was always, you know, neat and orderly. And so I think that really kind of rubbed off on me as far as just Scandinavian Japanese style design. So it was very clean, very minimal, as you've said. And I've always just been approached to that. So like, you know, kind of Dieter Rom style, you know, less is less is less, you know, yeah. so some people say less is more, but it's actually less is less. And so taking away all the unnecessary components, but also in 2009, when we started working on Mir, 
you know, it sounds wild now because there's so many drinkware companies out yeah. there, you know, chasing, chasing the, the growth there. But there was like a handful of us. It was like Hydro, you know, Yeti didn't come on scene until 2015. So it was like us, Nalgene, Stanley, Clean. So really just a handful of us. And a lot of them sounds funny, but they weren't designed to be water bottles. You know, like SIG was a fuel canister for a stove that just became a water bottle. If you have a backpacking stove, you put white gas in there and connect it up to your stove and that whole thing. So that's where it started from. And then somebody was like, oh, we should make these into water bottles. And they kind of had this trajectory, but it was, it was ultimately a, um, thought basically aluminum bottle with a plastic liner and then it had BPA and there's a whole BPA, BPA scandal there. And, you know, now G pivoted pretty quickly away from a BPA plastic. Um, and their, but their lid was like really wide, you know? And so when you drank from it, you always put water on your face. And I grew up on that because I loved them. The lid would hit in the face. So we just thought, how could we design a more simple and functional uh, water bottle to, you know, accommodate just drinking on the go, you know, in your car or whatever else. So that was kind of the first concept was fit in a cup holder, fit in your hand, drink from it. A lot of bottles had a lot of threads. And so when you look at functionality, you don't need more than like 180 to 360 as far as a turn goes to actually seal the product. So that was kind of the, the genesis was a, it was a very simple, very functional bottle that looks different, looks elegant. You know, you could envision it around the world. I think that's, I think really, I think really great design kind of transcends culture. And obviously we draw from a lot of Japanese inspiration, a lot of Scandinavian inspiration. But I think really good functionality, just human-centered design, as far as like everyone's mouth is around the same size, hands are relatively, you know, within a certain proportion, just lays nicely for, for a product. Yeah, absolutely. And then going back to the business model a little bit. So one of the first things I noticed on that first bottle is the giving code. So on every mirror product, there's a giving code that is, I don't know how more front and center you can really put it. And then you can type it into the website and see the project that your purchase helps fund. How'd you come up with the idea and how'd you actually turn that into reality? Cause I don't think I've seen that with any other brand. Yeah. I, I wish I could completely take credit for that. But my, my buddy, Pat, who is one of my, one of my college roommates, my wife and I had traveled to Liberia with a friend who had been working there for about 30 years. And so we, that was one of the first clean water projects we went and, and worked on was, and by worked on, I mean, like we went and observed like the local community uh, is the one who like digs the wells, trains other uh, individuals on, on how to sustain it, how to maintain it. And we got back from that trip and I showed my buddy, Pat, the photos from this trip. And he was like, so wait, the bottle that I bought from you helped fund this, this project. And I was like, yeah, it totally did. And like, that's when a huge light bulb went off of, you know, nobody's really like connecting the dots between something you purchase and then something that has, has impact beyond the purchase of it, you know, and it's becoming a little bit more, you're seeing more QR codes and things like that, of, you know, a little bit more transparency here and there, but certainly not very much. And, you know, certainly in 2010, it didn't, it didn't really exist. I mean, entrepreneurs weren't really celebrated in 2010. Social entrepreneurs were these kind of weird folks in the corner, you know, trying to imagine a better way to do business. <laughs> and so we just wanted to be front and center and transparent and say, Hey, this is, this is what we're doing with some of the money. This is the location. This is the GPS coordinates. Charity water had a lot of inspiration uh, for us early on. They were very transparent about where they were digging wells, GPS coordinates, really trying to bring transparency to a kind of a shadowy game of nonprofit of like, where does it go? And how much money do people make? And so we wanted to kind of like blow the doors off and just be really, really transparent with it. And we still have it today. You can punch in the code and the plans for, for 2022 are, are much, much deeper as far as really blowing up transparency into, you know, where was it, where was it produced? All of our factories are BSCI certified. We have some of the highest ethical standards in the stainless industry. We've passed Starbucks, basically sourcing code of conduct, which is one of the highest in the industries. And so 
those sort of things we want to expose to our customers and say, Hey, this is where we're producing it. And it's interesting because the old mindset was like, Oh, you can't let anybody know where you're, you're making your stuff. Cause then they'll go and steal your factories and your product. And when you start to ask why, like five times, exactly. why am I concerned about that? Well, maybe people are concerned because they haven't audited their factories. Um, so, well, that's not a concern of ours. Well, people will go there and they'll, they'll know, they'll know where we're making it. Okay. Is that a big deal? You know, well, they'll copy our product. Okay. Well, if we've protected it through, you know, IP rights, yeah. I'm not really concerned about that. So really once you, once you get down to it, there's not really a whole lot of reasons to not provide transparency into your supply chain. As long as you've done the hard work, like you have. Totally. And totally. And, you know, and, and even there is still, you know, additional work to be done because there's, you know, there's, there's improvements from the, you know, we'll get into plastics and whatnot. There's improvements on stainless and plastic and that whole thing. So it's, you know, that you have to go into it knowing that there's a journey and that, you know, some people will say, Hey, well, what about this? You know, what about yeah. the fact that it's on an ocean freighter from China to the U S you know, and, and we have down to the granular data of what ship it's on, what port it goes to. And so we get, we can carbon track everything. So yeah. Our goal is to be like way more transparent. Like you could register, you know, this camp cup and know where it was made. Um, if it was decorated, if it was laser etched, you know, where was that laser etching happening? Did it happen in our DC in Washington? Did it happen at our partner in Portland? Like where did it happen? Because I think that's important. I think transparency matters, and and ultimately, like it's like the reverse psychology. Like a lot of people are like, oh, we can't we can't show this information. You know, we got to hide it or whatever. But I actually, think the more you kind of expose it, the more that people are like actually attracted to what you're doing. Yeah, and then you also lead by example and show other companies that you can achieve this scale and this impact and all these certifications. This episode is brought to you by Caldera Lab. Caldera Lab is a certified B Corp, makes high-performance skincare by combining pharmaceutical-grade science with nature's most potent ingredients. Finally, a skincare routine that uses non-toxic, sustainable ingredients and actually works. In high school, I got a nasty sunburn that literally burnt the pigment out of my skin and left me with a surprisingly symmetrical two-tone mustache that led to my nickname, The Lorax. I've been playing beach volleyball professionally for over a decade, using sunscreen every day, and have spent more time in the sun than I care to think about. I can't tell you how damn happy I am to have a simple and effective daily routine to leave my skin feeling healthy and help offset all the exposure and damage that can come with playing beach volleyball. I use their three-product regimen daily. The Clean Slate is a balancing cleanser I use in the shower. The base layer is a light moisturizer I use every morning. And the good is an antioxidant-packed face serum I put on before bed every night. The regimen is backed by a clinical trial with real people and 100% participants reported healthier-looking skin. So I'm not alone when I say this stuff actually works. I love Caldera Lab's mission and products, so I want to share a special discount of 20% off for our impact listeners. Go to calderalab.com slash casebeer or use the discount code casebeer at checkout. That's C-A-L-D-E-R-A-L-A-B dot com slash casebeer. And that's one thing I'd love to dive into is I've been on this journey for a while trying to figure out basically before the podcast, what is my impact? What can I do about it? And then how can I help scale solutions? And obviously this podcast is an outflow of that, getting to talk to people like yourself who have been on the journey longer than I have and can help me learn. When I was starting, it's like, okay, how do I know that brands are actually taking legitimate action and they're transparent and it's legit and third-party certifications. You get nonprofits like B Corp, 1%, Climate Neutral, Evergreen, which you've earned all of those. And actually in our little catch-up call before recording, I'd, I'd never heard of Evergreen. I thought B Corp 1% and Climate Neutral was like the trifecta and the Holy Trinity or something, you know? <laughs> like, oh man, there's even another one that you're working towards. So I'd love yeah. to hear a little bit about the process. You embedded generosity and giving from day one. What was the process like? I think our mutual friend, Andy Fife from B Lab, who's been on the show, was pretty persistent in trying to help you become a yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, Andy's great, man. He, yeah, he definitely, definitely got after it early on. Like when B Corp was like unknown, he was trying to, you know, find the folks who could join the movement. And I mean, he kept coming by, you know, at every trade show, he's like, Hey, you got to join B Corp. Here's why. And I was like, Andy, we're already doing it. Like we have our give code. We're showing the transparent, you know, we're like, we're showing our model. We take care of our people, you know, the whole thing. And I was like, man, we're already doing it. Like, I can't, I, I can't afford to pay four grand to like yeah. put a little, like we're already doing it, you know? And he's like, well, we're this, you know, so he kind of like walked us through it and I was like, okay, fine. I'll be fine. And so we, we ended up, I felt like half the application because it's really robust. I mean, it's quite, quite difficult. I can do it for my escort and it's involved. It's going to take some time, but it's definitely something I want to work towards because it is valuable and you learn so much in doing it. Like identifying all the blind spots and I, that you may have glanced over. Totally. So I got, I got like halfway through the B Corp certification and you know, this is like, this is like circa 2013, I think. And there's like four of us, five of us maybe yeah. at that point. And so, you know, we're just trying to like, I'm selling and doing the books, doing everything, you know, a small team. And I just didn't have time to, you know, it was like on the back burner, like I'll get it, I'll get it done eventually, I'll get it done. And Andy calls me, he's like, hey, your application's going to expire in like 20 days. And then you have to redo the whole thing all over again. And I don't, I don't know if that was true or not, but I was like, all right, I'll, fine. I'll just finish it. Fine. So I like, you know, grinded through the rest of the application. We got certified. And then what's funny is like six months later, Patagonia emailed us and said, Hey, we're really interested in your company. We'd love to partner with you and, and work on drinkware together. And like, Hey, you know, B Corp certified and what percent of, you know, these are things that are really important to us. And, oh yeah, we we're certified B Corp now, you know, so the timing <laughs> kind of worked out nicely. And, you know, it's funny, 1% was the second certification that one took many years. <clears throat> and the reason was. Again, we were already doing it. We were at that time, we were giving about three to 5% of our revenue. And so I was like, well, if we, if we joined for 1% of the planet, like we're actually three Xing that. So people are going to think we're giving less, you know? And, and so, uh, a gal, uh, yeah, a gal at Patagonia was like, Hey, can you just like join? We'd really appreciate it. You know, our outside vendor program really appreciate people who join 1% of the planet. Maybe you can talk to them about putting like a little, like three X on top of it or you know, <laughs> something like that. And so, you know, we talked to the 1% folks and the irony is that we were already giving to nonprofits that were part of 1% network, Splash and Water First, uh, were some of our longer core evergreen nonprofit partners. And so for, for us, it was really just a designation of like funds and like yeah. certifying. So it was pretty easy to accomplish, but that was a funny, that was a funny one. <laughs> I like it. I need to 3X the 1%. Yeah. Yeah. And then to the carbon, you know, we're climate neutral certified, which the, the folks from Peak Designs. Yeah, uh, I've had Peter Daring on the show as well. Yeah, Peter. And then I'm, I'm blanking on the BioLite founder's name. Anyway, those, those two individuals really kind of took an initiative to, to make it easy for brands to calculate. And then they say it a very specific way. I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it, you know, you measure it and then you reduce it and then you offset it. They're like, no, 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 measure it, offset it, and then reduce it. So like, don't wait until you reduce it to offset it. Like just do it now and then find out ways that you can reduce it over time. And so, yeah, that's a hefty, that's a hefty bill every year, you know, the, the carbon emissions from production, from manufacturing, from shipping, but I think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And the cool thing with talking to Peter is it seems like with all things impact, whether it's social environmental, it's knowing where to begin and it takes a lot of digging and time. And especially with measuring your carbon footprint, it's really expensive. You have to hire outside consultants to do it for you. And even then there's a large margin of error. So they basically made, took their 1% for the planet donation, created climate neutral, created a massive data set with MIT climate scientists to make sure it's all robust and you know, to the letter and then remove that expensive consultant. So smaller brands can come in within 15 minutes, get a rough shot of the carbon footprint by entering in financial data and all the rest, and then refine it from there and go through the process. And they're basically 
putting the money that would go towards consultants and just going straight to offsets, which is the main goal from what Peter says, putting a price on carbon. So totally. see Peter and the founder of BioLite recognize a pretty broken system, expensive, lots of opportunities to be improved and then just go create their own. Yeah, it was very fragmented. You know, there's, there's, there's certainly newer ones uh, or other certifications now that are kind of popping up. Climate neutral, you know, we're part of climate, climate pledge uh, with Amazon. That one was actually kind of funny though, because we were already part of climate neutral. Yeah. They're like, Hey, we just need you to commit to, to all three scopes by like 2030 or 2050. Yeah. You know, some, some yeah. like number way out there. We're like, Oh, we're already doing it. We yeah. extend the certification. They're like, Oh, uh, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really, I, you know, knowing how complex some of the stuff is. I do have some empathy for big businesses where it's like, it is a lot of work to calculate what it is and how it affects your business. And so, you know, when you think about like slow moving ships, like the bigger the company, the bigger um, that task is. And so, so we've done that one, you know, part of the Conservation Alliance. There's a lot of other, you know, smaller entities that we're yeah. part of. We're about to launch a new certification with Evergreen, certified Evergreen company, which is essentially we're privately held. We haven't taken on private equity or venture capital. We're committed to long-term growth. I mean, there's a whole mantra of like seven P's of, you know, private pragmatic growth, you know, innovation. And, and so there's a whole host of things that they go through on the Evergreen certification. It's similar to B Corp, but it's, you know, publicly traded companies can be B Corps. I think it's still kind of hotly debated in the B Corp circle of whether that's kosher or not. And I think the Evergreen one, it, it'll take, it's kind of like early B Corp days where I think over time you'll start to understand who Evergreen companies are and what they, what they stand for. So. Again, it's just kind of a reflection of who we are. All these certifications are, are fantastic. They help signal the customer, but ultimately like we want the Mir brand to be just synonymous where like, if you just saw the Mir logo without all the certifications, you'd be like, oh, I know Mir is, is excelling and, and, the, and, and what we call kind of the possibility of doing business better. Our friend Propaganda, who's a hip hop artist in LA, kind of talks about this idea of transforming what is here already. He talks about terraforming, which is usually terraforming a planet. Mm -hmm. away from earth, you know, like Mars or whatever else. But he's like, we have everything here on earth. Let's just reimagine a better way of doing things. And so for us, we want to explore the possibility of how can business be better. I love it. And one of the, from that conversation with Dave Warden from the tugboat group who works with the evergreen certification, one thing that really stood out and some similarities from like some of my first insights in diving into this is like Yvonne Schnard at Patagonia. He's in it for a hundred years. He's not, there's no exit strategy. And that's something that I loved hearing you talk about. So we're jumping around a little bit and I've got so many questions <laughs> on it now. I would love to hear your take on taking the long view and your exit strategy or lack thereof. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think there's a lot of different business models for sure. You know, and certainly big, big concepts like autonomous driving, you know, even carbon stuff, you know, Rivian, like these sort of things need massive investments in capital. So to say that like nobody should take private equity or venture capital is, is not what I'm saying. But I do think there, especially consumer products um, and other industries, there is this tendency for, for private equity to kind of come in and swallow, swallow up companies and cultures. And you, it's pretty easy to look at companies that are owned by private equity and to then make a correlation to like Glassdoor or, or other places where they, you know, uh, met, I think turnover would be an indicator, reviews from customers would be a turnover would be an indicator, but there's this, there's a sense that, and it's, it's slightly changing. You know, there, you're seeing family offices get involved on the VC side and private equity side, but in general, and these are very general statements, but you know, in general private equity is really about the bottom line of just how much money extraction. That's about the multiple. It's about EBITDA. It's about how much are you making? And here's, here's an indicator. Here's a, here's, here's a way to, to <clears throat> understand and private equity or not, this is just a fascinating way. And it's a nuance. It's words. When you talk to somebody. 
ask them about their people and people who are invested in it for the long term or care about their people will say, if you ask, what's your, what's your biggest expense? They'll say my payroll, payroll is my biggest expense, most expensive thing on my, on my PL statement. We actually look at it as our biggest investment. And so, you know, it's a nuance. It's, it's technical, right? Like, yes, it is on the PL, it's on the lot. Like, yes, this we're taking profits and we're investing in people. However, most people, private equity, venture capital wise, they want to, they want to like squeeze that number as tight as possible. How can we get as much from these people as possible to make as much money as possible? And so when you, when you look at your company that way or a business that way, you then think about extraction. You think about how can I take from these people as much as possible to make as much money for myself? Whereas if you ask somebody, Hey, what's, what are you investing in these days? What's your biggest investment? You know, private equity would be, Oh, we're investing in tech. We're investing in all this other stuff, you know, and, and, and synergy and all these like fancy words that private equity people use. But then you, if you find an evergreen founder, they'll say, you know, my biggest investment is my people. It's, it's true. Like if you're going to spend millions of dollars on payroll, that is your, by far your biggest investment. And it's a, it's a slight nuance, but that's a great indicator of like where somebody's mind is. Are they in it for the long haul? Do they want to take care of their people? Or are they simply looking at it as like people as a means to an end to make money? And so I think hopefully over the long haul that people start to adjust kind of back to, you know, kind of European business model. And, and honestly, early days of some of American small businesses where people weren't looking at flipping their businesses in three years, you know, serial entrepreneurs weren't really a thing. I kind of kind of eye roll when I see people's IGs or LinkedIn, they're like, I'm a serial entrepreneur, you know, and, and listen, there's, there's super creative people out there who just come up with ideas and they just, they want to go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And that's great. But like the person just like grows it, sells it, grows it, sells it. Like I just, I'm relatively uninterested in that model and, and working with, with folks that way. Cause I think there's a lot of benefits to working on a long haul. You just, when you look at something over 10 years or 20 years, you have so much more room to control your destiny. And if you grow 10% a year for 20 years, that's incredible. You know, we, but the media celebrates and stable and it, it's sell you know, the media celebrates these like massive wins, you know, this person had the, you know, all these unicorns, like the unicorn celebration is unbelievable because it's, yeah, I just don't see amazing cultures coming out of these like IPOs, you know, or these SPACs. Like I just, you don't see like, oh yeah, this company went public and their people love it. Well, yeah, the people who had equity loved it because they went public and they had a bunch of money, but in five years from now, like Casper, private equity is buying Casper off the public market because the business is tanked. I don't think that's very sustainable. So anyway, that, I'm kind of going on. Like I said, with, there's so many different topics and questions, but two things I'd like, obviously that short-term mindset, quarterly results and all the rest for public companies, but that's one of the things that these certifications, B Corp, Evergreen help shift that perspective. You're not worried about meeting this quarter. There's things that'll come up. There's investments you have to make. And also where you shift your focus, because there's so much turnover within those short-term focus business. And now you're seeing the great resignation and when employees aren't well looked after, when they don't feel supported and comfortable and safe in their lives, like they're worried about making ends meet and healthcare and looking after their family as well. How do you expect them to show up at work? But there's two ideas kind of related to that that I'd love to dive into. It's basically the co-benefits that come along with these certifications and then, and doing this work both internally and externally, and also getting your own house in order. That's something that came up in doing research for this episode. And that's something that I was really focused on before. I've always wanted to have an impact. I decided to play volleyball and put off a career in sustainability or economic development to play and travel. And I loved it. And like you said, my twenties were kind of selfish. I was traveling, training, like, and now I'm start trying to understand more. And the first question is, all right, what is my impact? Like before I go preaching the gospel and pretending I have all the answers, no, what, 
what is my individual impact, travel, diet, purchasing, all the rest. And then what can I do about it? How can I work to get my own house in order? So love to hear you riff on kind of how, obviously you've been in it for 12, going on 13 years now, you have all these certifications and it might be pretty overwhelming for the average person or even another business leader, but how did you go about getting your own house in order? What are some of the co benefits? And then what's the focus? Cause you also launched an internal diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging team to focus on getting your own house in order, because that's such an important topic moving forward. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's certainly a lot to unpack. And I think, you know, one, one of the, one of the things for us is like, you know, a huge believer in just what's your next best step. It's, it's hard. You got to break things down, you know, and it can be certainly overwhelming. And, you know, when I talk to business leaders and entrepreneurs, it can be overwhelming to like, look at me and go, oh my gosh, like we've achieved all this stuff and it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Hey, listen, this A is not overnight success. You know, yeah. people love to be like, oh, mere overnight success. I'm like, yeah, it's been 13 plus years, you know, <laughs> it's been a grind. And so, you know, I think for us, we've always looked at, at mere as we want it to be, we want our actions to be ahead of, of how we like market the brand in a weird way. Cause I think a lot of people have it backwards. They want to like go and talk about all the good that they're doing. There's a movement from 2010 to 2015, you know, buy one, give one, one for one, all this sort of stuff. And again, back to product design, it was really cheap product or just not well-made. It was like, I'm going to capitalize on this movement of social entrepreneurs. Uh, you buy this thing, we're going to give this thing away. It was kind of just early social entrepreneurism, trying to figure out what's working, what's the market going to adapt to and, and, and stick to. But for us and fundamentally, and that's why, you know, we're pretty much price parity with our competitors. I never wanted to pass on the, the cost of generosity to our customers. It was like, first and foremost, we view all of our products. Can this compete without us talking about doing good? Meaning, can this be like, is the quality, is the quality there? Is the design there? Um, is the service there? Are the things that kind of go into the marketing of the product is can that go head to head with some of our competitors and can we win? Can we stand on the shelf without all the certifications? And if the answer is no, then we have work to do. If it's yes, and then you add back in all the things that we're, we're doing as a company, I think that's where you're gonna have tremendous, tremendous opportunity. I'd say looking back, especially after 13 years, I do think that's one thing that I would say to anybody who's starting out or, or kind of, you know, in this journey is like, you know, hey, it takes, A, it takes time, but also like that investment pays off tenfold and it's, it's hard because like making your own tools for your product costs a lot of money. It's super easy to go to China and grab something off the shelf and just be like, oh, I'm going to slap a logo on this, but it's not sustainable for the brand to go to do that long term. And so <clears throat> kind of first and foremost is like, whatever your thing is, product, service, you know, be world-class at it, or at least find your way to be world-class at it, regardless of whether you're going to be generous or you're going to offset your carbon or all those things. Uh, Cause I think that if you're, if you're truly going to be authentic, I think from a product perspective, that piece has to be there because we've all had those experiences where you're like, oh, this sounds like a really cool company and you buy the thing that it falls apart. You're yeah. like, this doesn't do anybody good, right? You know, for us, we're always on a journey to improve the product quality. We have some really cool initiatives around, you know, reducing virgin plastic. We've removed poly bags from 80% of our product lineup in North America. So when you, when you, when you purchase a mere product now, it just comes in a cardboard box. And so a lot of design went around, how do we structure the box? So that it doesn't rub, it doesn't get scratched and damaged and like oh, an incredible amount of work went into that. But what's great is, you know, we've reduced an insane amount of poly bags. You know, everything comes in plastic. You order anything from anywhere, it's in a plastic bag, you know? And it's so every experience too, though, just like, you know, I think Steve Jobs and Apple's, that's such an obvious example that gets talked about all the time, but it's an experience opening up that iPhone for the first time or whatever. 
And when you see a well-designed water bottle in a well-designed, thoughtful cardboard box that is sustainably harvested, that's part of the experience too. And yeah, that's a really, totally. so it's, you know, that's, and that's, and there's a cost there, right? Like it costs money and there's, you know, there's margin, but I, but I, you know, I think there's a, we always find a way to, to make it work, you know, for our brand. And I think, you know, some things for us, again, it's a journey, you know, and I think when you're early on, it's hard to pay people quote unquote market rate or compete against tech companies. We're in Seattle, right? So we're constantly, well, I can make more money at Amazon or Microsoft. And we always say, go, go work for them. You know, we're, we're not competing on that, on that level. We have to look within our own group of like-minded companies, like-sized companies, and and be sure to attract those individuals. And there's, you know, we have a lot of corporate refugees <laughs> that work at Mir that have been around the block and <laughs> for giant companies, publicly traded companies that are just like, they're done. They're like, I might make a little bit less, but I'm so done with that. And when you look at benefits and like comp and healthcare, like, you know, early on, you know, some of our first employees, we didn't pay for healthcare. I didn't like, my wife was, was working at Morgan Stanley full-time while we're trying to get this going. And so our health insurance was there. We were paying for rent through her job, you know? And so you kind of have to pick and choose your battles. And it was like every year we wanted to add just one benefit, you know? And so every year that's still our goal of like, what can we do this year? What can we do next year? You know? So it was like, we didn't have a 401k until two years ago and it was only a 1% match. And now it's a, you know, 3% match. So it's always trying to escalate. And that I think goes a long way to your, to your people of showing, Hey, we're trying to improve here as we grow and expand and, you know, make more money. We can also contribute back to the well-being of our, of our people. So that's been a huge initiative for us and, and really COVID despite all the, you know, the, the death and the sickness and the shutdowns and businesses going out of business and just the, the absolute turmoil of, of COVID, it, we've been really grateful for the opportunity to kind of, kind of rebuild a foundation, shore up a lot of things and really invest in our people. I mean, the amount of time and effort the last two years that we've spent investing and coaching our people, I'd say is extraordinary. You know, obviously I'm, I'm biased, but <laughs> how are you going about that? So we have, you know, we, we really, we really want people to show up at near their whole selves, right? So a lot of people talk about work-life balance. I think that's important for everybody who's not a founder. If you're a founder and you want work-life balance, you don't be a founder and that's fine. Not everyone should be a founder and entrepreneur. It's just period. If people are like, wow, how do you find work-life balance? Fully admitted, like my wife and I do not have a work-life balance. We have work-life integration, but we chose that. Like we absolutely chose that and we love it. It's a different path. We work together day in, day out. We're with each other all the time and we love it. So that, but that's for us. For everybody else, there's work-life balance, but there's like work-life integration in the sense of like, we want people to, to show up who they are at Mir. So don't just bring like your mind to Mir. We want you to bring your mind, your body, and your soul, your one self. Don't have this like separation of like, well, I can only show up this way at work and at home. I show up this way. We want to have that integration. So in uh, 2020, we developed... Uh, what we call internally the quad, which is our belief that you can only coach four things in an individual. And that's, you can coach your mind, your body, your soul, and your craft. People would probably debate soul, but I think that head and the heart connection is like so important and call it your gut, call it your heart, call it your soul. It's super important. And so we have on the mindfulness and meditation coach, we have a spring and fall semester that's optional for everybody. It's optional now. I might make it mandatory in the future. Um, and the reason why is I've actually been doing a lot of research and studying about implicit bias testing and, and how do we get over our, our inherent biases, conscious or unconscious. And it's fascinating. There was a study in the UK that, you know, a lot of training, a lot, a lot of effort goes into like, you know, these online training modules and how do we become more conscious of our bias and all really good intentions, but very rarely move the needle very much on the bias. What single-handedly moved people's unconscious bias 
was self-awareness, mindfulness and meditation. And if you are somebody who practices mindfulness and meditation, you start to realize, well, that's probably because when you're in that space, when you're thinking about who you are and how you relate to the world, your biases kind of slip away. Cause I think you, you start to get to the core that like, we're all human and we're all here trying to have the human experience together. And you start to, the things that like matter, you know, where you grew up, how you grew up, your impressions of others, age, race, gender, all that stuff kind of, kind of starts to melt a little bit away in mindfulness and meditation. And so. I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still digging in on that, but I think that's a, a huge component. And I hope, I hope that starts to unlock for more people. I'm not, I'm not against training. I think coaching and conferences and all that stuff is really, really important, but it's like, it's kind of like when you go to camp in the summer, you're like, woo camp. And then you come back and you're like, we're in training camp, right? It's like about the daily training, right? hundred percent. And that's, yeah, you're touching on a lot of ideas that I've come to understand it's true through competing over 10, 11 years now playing volleyball professionally and Michael Gervais touches on the same thing. All you can train is three. He doesn't include soul, which I think is very relevant. And some people are more in tune with that than others, but that compounding daily action and incremental progress is huge. You do do a little bit better each day. You're going to be a different person by the end of the year, depending on what you're working. You can learn anything you want in six months to become a master. Obviously it takes significantly more time and effort, but incremental daily progress is huge. Yeah, that one percent, that Kaizen model is, is super, super important. So we, so we, the quad for us is really important. There's, there's DEIB work, work within the quad. We have our mindfulness and meditation coach. Every, every person who joins me or goes through um, our programming of managing with mind and soul, which is a huge, this huge module. Hopefully, my bookshelf doesn't fall over as I grab this giant PDF. Um, but it's this huge. Basically, our, our, our executive coach goes to this huge managing the heart and mind book. That's, that's massive. It's about, it's about how to give and receive feedback. It's about you know, Burge model, it's about career development, behavior styles, giving feedback, practicing feedback, you know, sponsorship in the organization. And so it's, you know, it costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time, but it's super important. So everybody goes through that. We're really serious about developing our, our people leaders. So there's, there's that. We tried Michael Gervais and Pete Carroll's compete to create. It was our, it was good. It was virtual. It was online. Everything was online. And that was, that was a roadblock for a lot of folks. Yeah. And then we, so we ended up testing out made for which Blake from Tom started in uh, a Navy SEAL toilet blank. So we pay for that. If anybody wants to go through that, I've done it. Um, I'm on my second year of doing it. So it's basically habit formation, 10 kind of modules, hydration, uh, nutrition, vision, sleep, meditation, connection. So there's all these really incredible things you practice for a month on one thing. And I think those are really foundational to becoming a better person, a better you. So we have that. You know, if you want to be a, if you're a project manager, you want to get certified as a project manager, we pay for a PMP course. So we've had two accountants become CPAs that merely be paid for. So again, like the quad is expanding. How do we want to improve this? But the, the belief in it, and so far we think it's working that, you know, really coaching on mind, soul, body, and craft is, is really, really important. We do Enneagram as a company. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, but. I did it. I was a volunteer UCLA for the women's speech volleyball team and the head coach, good friend of mine, Stein Metzger did it which I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Like I can't even imagine, I was so clueless when I was 18 or 19 and to go through that myself as like a freshman in college and understand how me and my partner in the court, how our dynamic is, what their traits are, how they like to receive feedback, like what support they need, that'd be huge. And same thing in the workplace. Totally. So, the, you know, Enneagram has been a huge unlock for for myself, our executive team, and and really you know, how you show up in the world, understanding why you show up certain ways, understand how others show up. And it kind of provides a language for people inside the company to understand how, how people interact, because we all have different personalities. You know, there's all, you know, there's a, there's a ton of models, you know, there's strength finders and disc and 
you know, yeah, yeah. Um, a whole bunch of them. But I, we really find a lot of value in Enneagram because it's so dynamic. It's been around for thousands of years. So there, yeah, those are those are kind of some of the pieces in the quad that I really think hopefully build a really healthy culture. Absolutely, man. Literally, these are all the things that I'm considering paying for myself. Man, to have a mindset coach, to have a daily meditation practice and someone coaching you through it, to be able to go back to school and get an extra certification. That's amazing, man. I can only imagine how how grateful the employees are to have that and feel that support. And then, yeah, you don't have to deal with the turnover. Obviously, you're growing a lot, so you're hiring, but you just treat people well and they'll perform at a much, much better level and everyone works together. We'll measure, well, we've measured turnover. It's fairly low. It'll be interesting over five years to measure that as we've kind of developed the quad from the last two years to see if that, what that, what that produces. I, a, I think it's the right thing to do. Even if turnover is higher, but like, I still think it's the right thing to do. I will say it's interesting. We have a fairly young team and folks who have not had a job or two, or like if this is their first job or maybe their second job. It's been interesting. We've had two people kind of leave and then come back. So they left Mirror and they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know how good I had it. You know, yeah. so they want to come back. And so I think that's one of the challenges is that working with young folks who haven't had an experience, you know, they go off and, and go to another larger company or somewhere else that doesn't care as much about the people. They're like, oh, wow, I had no idea the amount of effort that you guys take to do this. And not to like toot around horns, but I think it's just a, a reminder of like, I always appreciate it when somebody comes in who's been around the block a few times and is like, and then they kind of evangelize. They're like, y'all, this is not normal. This like doesn't happen in the real world. <laughs> so one of the things when I started focusing like my brand partnerships around B Corps, 1% climate neutral brands, it's really cool, cool to see how strong and collaborative the community is. And after 12 years going on 13, you've worked with hundreds of brands, nonprofits, creatives to build out all these interesting projects and scale Mirror's impact all while staying profitable and growing. How do you think about building out successful partnerships or collaborations where everyone benefits and then there's also a tangible social, social or environmental impact? Yeah. So we, you know, for us at Mirror, we have what we call internally, we have our MVPs, uh, which is our mission, our vision, our practices. A lot of people call MVP, mission, mission, values. We have this internal belief that values are just a set of words that usually collect dust on a poster on a wall and practices are things that you do daily. You yeah. hear them, you hear them within the walls or, you know, really the tubes of the internet between, you know, Zoom calls these days. But our practices, one of our practices is, is we find a way. And, you know, I think that's really important for brand partnerships is that we often work with individuals or companies and we try to find a way together to work on something that's much larger than, than just singular one of us. I think that's, that's allowed us in specific instances, you know, it's interesting thinking back into how branded partnerships came about for us. You know, we have our web sales, DTC, we do have wholesale business and we do have our custom business where we do brand partnerships. And that's been a, a robust growth for us. And it's interesting because we've seen kind of like competitors try to like latch onto that with limited success. And I think part of the reason we have success is we, we think win-win. We're constantly, how does this win for us? How does this win for them? And we also have always created our products in a way that allows for like, we don't demand that the mere brand is like the biggest thing on our vessel. You know, yeah. there's another, there, there's another, yeah, <laughs> there's another four letter drinkware name out there and it's massive. It's all about that brand, you know, and, and, you know, we had an instance where uh, one of our great customers said, Hey, you know, we're, we're going to try it out with the company. And it was actually funny because they said, you know, we feel like mirror is like in too many locations, which was funny because we feel like we're much smaller than this billion dollar publicly traded company. So we we were like, oh, we'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. And they tried to do this brand partnership with this other company and they came back and they said, yeah, it just looked funny because their logo was so massive. 
and that it didn't work. And so it was, it was just, it was, just, it was kind of like, it made us chuckle because, you know, I think it comes down to ego in a sense where we don't need the mere logo to be the biggest billboard, like the biggest thing. And I think there's a lot of magic in, in brand partnerships, but it wasn't always easy. I'll, I'll say that early on, there were so many people who were like, Hey, we want a private label bottle. Hey, we want a bottle without your logo on it. And I kept saying, no, I was like, no, 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 no. It, the mere logo is on there. And the reason why is because you get this halo effect. We're about transparency, high quality design. You will know our mere product by its design. And so what's funny now is that like, we can in theory probably take the mere logo off and you still know it's a mere product just based on the design, which is like, so our design language is getting there, but we say, Hey, we keep the logo on there. And when you're long-term minded, like if you're thinking about 10, 20 years and you're thinking about one deal and that one deal might fall through because you don't take your logo off, we're like, we're like, okay, that's fine. You know, and, and not like a, we don't need you. It's more just like a, Hey, you know, we're confident in who we are. This is our business model. We'd love for you to partner with us. If you need to go private label, that's not for us, you know? And, and so far, so far it's worked. I also think because of our generosity, because of our design, that's a huge piece of it. You know, it's also drinkware is a really, it, it looks maybe simple from the outside to make a really high quality vessel that doesn't leak. It sounds easy. It's extremely difficult <laughs> as far as like tolerances and seals and like all the complexity that goes into that can, can be, can be quite a bit, but for us, you know, brand partner, we love brand partners. I love partnering with nonprofits. I love partnering, you know, with, with Patagonia and, and Blue Bottle and Stumptown and, you know, so many, so many great small businesses as well. I think that's, that's one thing that's been really fun is we partner with so many incredible small businesses around the world. We're sold in 62 countries around the world, you know, to, to have companies from Japan to Korea to Europe to the Middle East want to partner is, is, is really exciting. Like, I think that is infinitely more exciting than just like building a brand one brand, one logo, and like selling that in retail, like that works. That's like a, a, obviously a very traditional model of like, here's the brand, here's what it stands for. I'm going to purchase it. Totally get it. For me, how I'm fulfilled, I love partnering with Rivian or, you know, whoever it may be to me that just, I just get fired up when I think about brand partnerships. <laughs> well, it shows that one, your product, like you said, your product focus and you're creating something different that is as good, or in my opinion, better than all the other products on the market and that your values and the effort you've taken to give back and have an impact while you're growing resonates. So yeah, earlier in the conversation, the fact that it's more human centric, that it, people who maybe never even heard of it on the other side of the world are like, oh, this is amazing. What's this all about? And reaches out to do business. That's pretty damn cool. Yeah. It's fun. We think of it like an onion. Like we want, we, like I said before, you know, we want people to think about the product of like, wow, I'm visually attracted to this. It functions really well. It lasts a long time. Like we want that to be first and foremost. And, and, you know, listen, the certifications are great. The grant making that we do is awesome. I always feel a little, still a little weird when we like market the certification or like the giving, like I know, like I know fundamentally I know it works. Like I know it works because I've seen it. Right. But I always, I always want to have the brand and the product, the brand partnership kind of be that, that spotlight because I don't want people to feel guilted into like buying this, you know, or certainly like that they're doing this because it's going to like change the world. We're just trying to run the most responsible business that we know how. And then as we operate as an onion, where it's like the deeper you get, the more you're like, wow, that's really cool layer. This design is cool. Oh, wow. They give back. Oh, they're transparent about giving yeah. back. Oh, they have third party certifications. Oh, I interacted with their team on the B2B side. They're such nice people. Oh gosh, I had this product quality issue and they totally returned the product. Oh, they have a reclaim thing where they actually take the old product and make it in a new product. Like, oh, I actually have a friend who works there and they have this amazing experience. Oh, I work here. This is the best company. I, like, that's how we kind of think about the mere brand is that this like 
like we just want to constantly peel away the layers and that, you know, each one is like, oh, wow, that's really cool. So one of the ideas that I'm trying to figure out myself is what is the connection between individual action, community or collective action and the role of business working towards systemic change? Obviously with COVID and Black Lives Matter, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of flaws in our system. And if it's not broken yet, it needs some serious reworking. So how do you think about the interaction of individual collective and then the role of business working towards basically creating a better social and economic system? Yeah, it's a great, I mean, it's, you know, a lot of layers there and there's, there's, you know, nuance, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we named our, our, our third son gray. And part of the reason we named our son gray is, you know, especially in the last two years, there's so much polarization, black and white, left and right, this, that, you know, there's, there's just so much there. This person's awesome. This person's horrible, you know, resist this, don't resist that. And so, you know, there's like these extremes and they're loud. And I actually think most of us live in the 90th percentile, 80, 90 percentile of like common sense, reasonableness, politeness, you know, virtualness has, has made people callous and, and obnoxious. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of us when face to face in, in the physical world, you know, can just have much more, we have so much more in common than we think. And so anyway, I say that because like, I think a lot of the gray space is actually where, where it matters. Like the gray, the gray is where the beauty is. And so our, our son's name is kind of an honor of that. Of We really think that the world is not black and black and white. It's really gray. And I, you know, I'm a huge believer, obviously like I'm a company, I'm a, you know, I believe in capitalism. I believe, I believe absolutely free markets. And, and yet I don't think business has explored the possibility of what it can be. And I think, I think it's proven. I think if you look at the history of the world, I, I don't believe socialism or Marxism or, or a lot of those systems have worked out well. I just, I just don't, I think greed gets in the way. And certainly, you know, our democracy has a lot of room for improvement. Our history has not been great. And yet you think about how much poverty has been reduced from the simple idea of buying and selling goods and economics. So how do we become more efficient in that system? I think is, is where I certainly always spend my time, especially with Mir. I certainly look back over the last 13 years and think early on, people were like, you can't do it. You can't give that much money away and pay your employees and make a great product. And then, and, 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 right. And, and, you know, not, not that we're like a shining light by any means, but I go, well, gosh, you know, we have survived after 13 years. We've given almost $3 million away. We pay our employees, I think, really well. We have incredible benefits. We have incredible brand partners. We're profitable. We're self-funded. Like we don't need private equity. We don't need venture capital. So I, I don't know. I, I, I almost am like, and, and yet like, you know, people go, hey, when are you, when are you and Beck going to sell Mir? And, we, and I always kind of laugh because I'm like, to do what? You know, they're like, well, you can make a bunch of money. You know, you get millions of dollars. Okay. So I have millions of dollars and I have time on my hand. Now what do I do? I'm probably going to go back to doing exactly what I'm doing now as far as like building a great business and do all these things. So, so it's kind of this like thing where it's like, why would I sell it to go back to do what I'm doing now when I'm already enjoying what I do now? Right. So for us, you know, I, I kind of chuckle because, you know, I'm sure that I could make way more money if we didn't give it away. Right. Like I know that, right. I give three, three million dollars in my pocket. However, the benefit from supporting nonprofits intrinsically just feels good. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, I don't know what I'd do with that money. And also I honestly think as we start to grow and as we increase profitability and we grow the business, I can't help but think like, gosh, 
we're satisfied with where we are in our, like our personal lives. Like we live incredible lives. You know, you think about like the food that we get to eat, being able to access mindfulness and meditation, being able to work with an executive coach, being able to travel around the world pre COVID, like all these things that we have access to because we started our own business. And yet like our team is paid really well, it's healthy. Maybe we just haven't explored the possibility of what a business can be and what it should be. Like maybe we've been a little bit too greedy as business owners in the past, you know? And so I think, I don't know, I think, I think there's a lot of nuances between my business and somebody else's business. So it's not to say that everybody is, everybody can have the same business as us, but I do think, and I do know, especially going through that evergreen certification, that there are businesses out there who care about their employees. And you hear so many people who are like, I hate my job, you know, like they just, they can't stand showing up. So I just, I don't know, man, I just, I'm, I'm riffing long here, but I think, oh, I love it. I just think that there's a lot of opportunity for business to improve. And I think fundamentally the idea of, of free market economics has been proven. I just think there's a lot more of, uh, efficiencies that we could do. And I'll say, I'll say this about climate neutral as well. It's fascinating because again, on the polarization of like climate change is real. It's not real. Global warming is happening. It's not happening. Science is free, you know, all this noise. The commonality and the bridge I've been able to make with people that I meet who are like, global warming is fake. It's not happening. Or people who are like extremists, like, hey, the ocean's going to rise a feed by tomorrow. It didn't happen. Um, both extremes, you're like, hey, because it, it's also kind of like interesting. Don't you think about like, if someone's like, we should, we should be offsetting our carbon because we're going to destroy the world. Okay. So you're only motivated because like the world's going to end. Like, let's take it even like people don't think about this, but like, so you're only now motivated because of the consequences, not because of the intrinsic value of it. And I think that's where people on both sides are a little bit off. And, and that, that's certainly our approach is that like, hey, if we're right about what's happening, it's probably a good idea. I like the earth. I think it should preserve. I don't want to terraform Mars. If people do it, fantastic. Good on them. I also think at the fundamental level, it's our responsibility to operate more sustainably or to have less impact. So like, so people who are like climate, climate change is real. And I was like, even if you're, even if you were right, do you not think it's a good idea to be better stewards of the resources that we have just philosophically? And they, you know, once you break down that wall, they kind of go, oh yeah. Okay. Like, you know, some people will never get there. That's fine. Whatever. Like they're off there. But I just, I operate from that perspective. Like no matter what people are saying, is happening. I fundamentally believe it's the right thing to do and we should do it regardless. We should be moving to post-consumer recycled plastic for our lids, even if there's an infinite supply of virgin polyplastic. Yeah. Why? Because we don't need more plastic in the oceans, right? So like there's all these, I don't know, there's all these things where we're trying to strip it down to like, what does this actually mean for business? And I think at like a, at a high level, I think business is fantastic. I think, I think economics is fascinating. I think international trade, like the ability to, and you know this from traveling, traveling builds empathy you get to see other cultures you get to see how people live you get to have your eyes open to like holy cow we are so blessed with what we have and yet a lot of us are really frustrated because of all the excess that we do have and so i just yeah i'm a huge believer in business i think we all do better ourselves included you know by no means i'm like we're the best you know where it's a journey not a destination you know sounds cliche but i think it's absolutely right like you know three three years from now we'll be like i can't believe we didn't do xyz like we're so we're so unintelligent for not thinking that. Oh man, there's so many things I would like to continue to dive into, but I couldn't agree more, especially on the way that things aren't black and white. Things are gray. Not everyone has the ability to take certain actions or do certain things. And there's no such thing as overnight success. And especially the way that you've positioned mirror for the long term and you've incrementally, you instilled 
your practices, not values from the beginning and took incremental progress. What's the next best step? How can we improve this year? How can we improve the way that our supply chain functions? What certification can we go towards? How can we help our people? How can we train better? And I feel like that's the big thing is people always trying to put things in terms of black and white. Capitalism is evil. No. Fossil fuels are evil. Not really. They kind of brought billions of people out of poverty. We would not be where we are without them. We should be grateful. And Dr. Catherine Hayhoe from Project Drawdown talks about that. It's like, no, like I'm grateful for what fossil fuels have done and what capitalism has done. Can it be proved? Absolutely. It's basically the same system from, I don't know, 100, 150, 200 years. Like we probably need a little refresh and update, which B Corp is all about. Um, totally. And yeah, business can be. And that's what's exciting. I think that's what gets me goosebumps is thinking about like incremental improvement, you know, because if you're just like plateauing in, in, in like, you know, as like an athlete, you're like, well, I've just, I've done the thing, you know, and you're not like trying to get better. And it's like, no, no, no. What, since when have we ever thought that like being stagnant is a good thing, you know? And so, oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's important to like be healthy and just like walk and like eat less, whatever, you know? So we'll like, well, then let's take the next step and the next step and the next step. And I think that's, what's great about business right now is I think we're, we're starting to like pull on those threads of like, what is that next step? What does it look like to have a more, you know, equitable future for, for all entrepreneurs, right? Like that's, those are the things where it's like, no, I'm confident on this, but like to, to burn down everything to like start over and to like never use fossil fuels. I'm like, nah, I just, just leave this complete chaos. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's so. the thing that that's so cool to see too, is obviously you've done this over 13, 12, 13 years, and it's been a large body of work and a lot of effort and grind, but it also is an example for those people with ideas that are launching their businesses. And I think, you know, stakeholder capitalism and B Corp and climate neutral 1% evergreen, like that's the model that most young people who are going to be launching their business now or in the next few years are going to be looking at. And it's infinitely easier to implement those practices and values when you're building or beforehand than once you've already been in business and you're massive and have thousands on your team. So totally, totally. And I hope we can be a, you know, an inspiration for folks who are certainly starting because it's, you know, it's not easy, but I, you know, we're like a one small, tiny example that like it can be done. I hope people can be inspired and can go, oh, I can't operate my business in a different way. Like I can choose this. It's not gonna be easy, but I can do it. Yeah, hundred percent, man. Well, thank you again. And you got to run, man. You got a <laughs> five-year-old, got the plumber coming. You got to go. So, again, for taking the time. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. It's fun. Hey, this is Jeremy again. Thanks for listening to another episode of Our Impact. I hope you found this conversation useful and interesting. If you have any feedback about this episode, suggestions for future guests or topics, please leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.